Technology and food have to be in the top five passions for any nerd. I'm Chris Riley, tech advocate for Splunk, SweetCode contributor, and bad coder turned dev enthusiast. I sit down to eat with techies to talk about modern technologies, careers in tech, and advancement in development practices. My employer does not own or sponsor this podcast. My thoughts are my own, and no guests were drugged or coerced during the recording. This is Developers Eating the World. All right, so we're here at Big Daddy's Burger in the Denver Tech Center. Haven't been to one of these yet. That's <laughs> oh, great food here. <laughs> I mean, actually, I, I looked at the menu online, so I, I know that I've been saving up all day. I didn't eat anything all day because I normally don't uh, get burgers. Um, I'm sitting here with Rob. Rob is a technical consultant, and uh, you know, you, you invited me out here today. And why don't you tell me a little bit about what you're up to? So um, these days, as a consultant, I've been working, um, you know, working with some large companies. I currently work uh, a lot with Dish, uh, super, super company to work for, um, and um, spend a lot of time on. Spend a lot of time in the in DevOps, um, both on the culture side and the technology side, and then building building some of their new products. Um, so you know, Dish Dish has been been growing, and they got a lot of new businesses they're trying to get get into. And I have, uh, I have a great team I work with there that we're doing work in in that space. Very cloud centric, uh, very you know back end big iron IT stuff. It's it's pretty neat to to watch those two things fit together. Right. And you know, kind of from my perspective, I still feel like those are the laggards in the DevOps world. Yeah. So it, you know, it. I, I have had this debate for many years uh, about DevOps, and I'm, I, um, in the early 2000s, I worked for um, one of the big cable companies on the East Coast, Cablevision. They're now Altice, and it was like 2004, 2005, and my boss at the time said, "Hey, they finally gave what we do a name." Right, and that time DevOps wasn't a thing. And he sent me this article. It says they now call it DevOps. I went, wow, that's cool. I didn't know we had a name of what we do, right? Um, so sometimes people say DevOps is just tools, and sometimes they think it's culture, right? So depending on who you talk to. And um, in most cases, a lot of large enterprises don't understand the culture of DevOps. They yeah. think, oh, they got Jenkins, we're good. We're, we're yeah, DevOps. right, no, right. I, I've always considered there's, there is two DevOps. There's DevOps, the tactics, the practice, yeah. and then there's DevOps, the driving principles behind, and, and hopefully you just validated that, because on the principle level, you shouldn't have to label it. You should just have the principles of you know being able to embrace new processes, new technologies, and so forth. Unfortunately, I think we have to label it because large enterprises aren't able to have a conversation until you put the label on it yeah. and start to kind of create some structure around it. And it becomes really risky when people are like, oh, we do agile. You know, we, we, we have Jenkins plus Agile, so we're DevOps. We're good, yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. But it's not that, it's like, it's always moving the needle forward and embracing change and embracing failures, so. A number of years ago, I worked for Charter Communications out here, and one of the struggles we had in, in implementing DevOps was the entire development team, of course, was using good pipelines, it was all cloud, but the handoff to the operations team was literally a handoff. And all of a sudden, the principle of you no know, handoffs and the principles of, of bringing software on a you know a 
fast, rapid basis into, into cloud or on-prem, whichever, um, broke down. So now you got to worry about, okay, how am I handing it off to you? And where's the documentation? And then there's no real mechanism to go back. Now, we, we, we built mechanisms to go back. So we built processes to try to do that. But the cultures didn't fit, right? Okay, so what window do you want? Uh, kind of all of them. Like, we want to deploy when we need to deploy. Right. Right? So, um, you know, one of the huge uh, discussions that we'll have with people that I work with on the DevOps side is, okay, so what are your current process? Maybe you're a solid ITIL person, right? Deep, deep into that space, you can still have change management that runs in DevOps. You can still have um, release management. You can still have all those things. They all marry into DevOps, but it isn't just to pipeline changes and you're good, right? You got audit controls, you got security, you got DevSecOps. It's a big thing. Forget the technology for a second, right? And the big enterprises, it's it's tough, right? It's tough for them to buy into the whole thing. Yeah, this disease of expecting the tool to do the job for you, it's not going away. Like even the DevOps unicorns out there, yeah. they have it on the other extreme where anything new that comes out is expected to be like the mecca, the end all, yeah. the answer to everything. You know, there's Jenkins, but you know, Spinnaker's huge right now. Um, people just really latch on and are hopeful that the tool is going to solve everything, but it's not, unless you know how to communicate. Yeah, and you know, even you go back to Spinnaker, right? I was, I ended up working with one of the companies that contributed to Spinnaker back oh, really? a number of years ago. Yeah, great company, small consulting company out of New York and here. Um, called Kenzon, and the, the you know, Spinnaker was bit, was driven a lot out of the Netflix, you know, the Netflix structure. Right. Yep. And in the early days of, you know, before containers, and, and before that world took off, you were running, you're trying to figure out how to run cloud, and you're trying to run cloud in a more efficient way, and they said, look, we got it, let's build on the Netflix OSS stuff, and Spinnaker became an offshoot as they continued through that. It's right. a great, great, great product, but it's one of many now, right? Right, and which I guess in a way is kind of good. Jenkins, yeah. Jenkins needs to. I mean, Jenkins dominates like sixty percent of the release automation. Oh, is it? Yeah, it's huge. It's great. It's simple, but now of course the cloud providers bring out their own, right? Their own stuff. Well, right. GitLab has their own. Yeah. I'm sure GitHub will as well, if they haven't already started. I, I thought they did, but I don't know. Yeah. So new new tools, um, but that you know that. That's, I think, sometimes when I go in to talk to people or working on development teams, we work through as much automation as possible, and then we work on the process. So if the team is small enough, you can sort of contain the process, right? If you've been given those, those right. conditions, yes, you can release, the business will tell you, you know, when you can release, but you still need all the controls, and, and some enterprises don't understand how to get those controls, right? Oh, you can release anytime you but want. But do they also treat the controls like literally as kind of their job? Like they they translate the controls also into their role. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I worked for a large financial company here in in Denver, and um, it would take us probably once you get through all the AWS things like security, the right person for security groups and IAM roles and. Um, who's spinning up the EC2s, all those things, it took a couple weeks. 
Um, and the comment from the business was, it takes us longer to spin up at AWS than it did on-prem. <laughs> and of course, wow. the, the answer yeah, is, just re you're redoing what you do. Yeah. And you know what? It's just shifting the garbage. Right. So um, you don't have to reinvent, but you certainly have to, you have to figure out the guardrails are way different. You still got to be secure, but in a different way. You still have to have authority to do certain things like don't open up the world on your S3 bucket. That has to be there, but now there's better tools and security can still play very active either upfront role, you know, on the shift left side or, you know, post deployment however they want to do it. But this they can still play those roles. Yeah. So you've done a lot in telecom. And like I said, I think what's really interesting in my perception, telecom is laggards in the world of DevOps, but not just the world of DevOps, the world of software. And it sounds like that might might not actually be the case. I I, I don't think so. I, I think that um, there's there are some telecom folks that are conservative because you know you deploy software and the effect is you know your cable modems go down for 20 million people, right? So you've got to, you've got to have really tight controls on what you might push to devices. Yet, some of the stuff that you might see in uh, set-top boxes and websites might be a lot more agile and can be more agile and more DevOps. So the company as a whole has very much separation of software duties. Um, and some are immensely you know, um, DevOps-ish, right? They, they have small teams and they deploy quickly, but not all of their software can do that. Yeah, some of it's still, it's just big. And it's, you know, you go into a billing system and the billing team might be running sprints every two weeks, but the release might be every quarter. Right, right. right. And, and we as consumers don't think about all the internal backend line of business applications that are even take longer, like, we're used to customer-facing applications being more modern and, and agile, but they have to tie into something. Um, yeah, I mean, think about how many financial institutions or even in the telecom space still use mainframes. Yeah, I know, and then right? you have ZOS. So Zio, which I, I, I would love, I don't even know how to do this, I would love to get my hands on some basic mainframe rig so that I can play with COS, because COS's whole claim is to be that buffer between modern and old. And I haven't played with it at all, and I really want to do that. I've, I've been able to work in a, in a couple companies where you know they have mainframes and they're migrating out of the mainframe. Um, and others, um, you know, they're still writing COBOL. And there, there's reasons for it. But you know, how, do you, how do you take a big mainframe or a big you know, single-threaded COBOL system and surround it with DevOps principles and microservices. Right. Like software architecture in that world, it's tough. Yeah. Right? It, it's it it we don't you don't always get that luxury of building brand new node stacks uh, on everything. Just, just but I think kind of the grit associated with DevOps is that you shouldn't just say no to the problem because it's there. Yeah. I was at a, my State Farm agent's office. And she had two monitors. One was the terminal window into the green screen system. Yep. The other was the modern web interface. And she had to make all the changes in the modern web interface, but I had to look up all the shit. And the whole, and I'm like, mind-boggling. Classic swivel chair, right? Yeah. Yeah, too. And I mean, 
in certainly in the telecom companies, the cable companies, you build uh, green screen scrapers. Yeah, right. That's, that's and insane. that's what you do, right? Because you can't necessarily change that, but you you want the microservice. So a lot of times in the software architecture, you try to put nice facades around them and you try to to wrap them and use modern caching techniques to bring the data up. So certainly in some of the cable companies, we would, you know, there are back-end billing systems wouldn't necessarily be responsive that we want, but we'd bring the data up yeah. into modern caching systems, let that background process figure out how to how to refresh itself. Are we we're ready, I think. Yeah. Do you know what do you want I'm to I'm just it? gonna grab some tater tots. Yeah. Got it. Do you want to upgrade to green chili cheese? No, no, I just. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, I'm going all out. So the problem is, my wife's vegetarian. Not a problem. Great, great for her. Great yeah. for being home. It's the only reason I'm like not super overweight. <laughs> but when I go to a place like this, I have to go all out. Yeah. Wings are my weakness. Yeah. That was another episode where I had wings. <laughs> Burgers are my weakness because I probably get one burger every two months or something. So back to the telecom software and DevOps. Uh, <coughs> as a techie looking in, like a lot of techies, you kind of think about like reverse engineering how things are built. You just kind of naturally do that. And although I love to hate Comcast, um, I feel like a switch was flipped there recently, maybe in the last two years with the XFi software, where they seem to have pretty rapid cadence of releases and even as it relates to software on the router, because uh, you know I was always the guy that would always get a separate, separate Wi-Fi router for whatever I had, and they've done a good job. I've even subscribed to their security package. Yeah, they're, they, you know, I I, uh, I worked with Comcast for on and off for a couple of years while I was at Charter, and um, and certainly at that time. Uh, a couple years ago, they in a variety of their di different software businesses, they were very much DevOps focused. Um, rapid release on modem software was absolutely there. Rapid release on their um, their set-top box software. Um, so they, at least from what I know and and what I've seen, um, they've embraced a lot of those concepts. But the and that and that's you know on set-top box through to modems through to clearly on the you know backend systems where where you could. Um, and I think that's the, you know, part of that is the cultural thing, right? If, if you have a top-down culture that says, we're willing to make those, take those risks, because there are risks, right? Yes, I, and I, I think they've done an excellent job um, trying to place those principles in, inside their software development teams. And um, their leadership um, very much wanted that rapid release, right? Within the constraints of a cable company. You don't take... I don't know, what are they up to? 35 million customers, something like that? Um, you don't take those down, right? So yeah, it's a, There's a lot of magic that happens there. I, um, I remember when I first got my Apple TV and I was trying to figure out some backdoor authentications. Thank you. To, um, you know, because you, you can download like the apps for like Food Network and so forth, but you have to do this weird authentication with your cable provider and there was a way to do a back uh, a backdoor one and a, a lot of the things that I noticed through that I was kind of surprised was like somehow Adobe's involved in authentication of some of there's like a lot of weird magic you stuff. want the whole story 
Yeah, if you have it, absolutely. Yeah, I was there when it started. Really? Yeah. Um, worked nice. with, uh, at that time, I was working at Cablevision. And um, one of the things that we were trying to do as an industry is um, allow people who had their cable, their cable subscription to watch things online. This was before the big cable packages. So what, what year was this? Uh, that would have been like 08, 2008. Oh wow, okay. Um, and a couple of the um, leading, leading uh, content providers wanted to figure out how to, how to say that you had a cable package, so you're allowed to watch HGTV, um, but I want to watch it on this device. And, um, and so you think about it, how many cable providers there are, you know, tier one, tier two, and how many content providers are there? Hundreds. So does every cable provider talk to every content provider? And do they, have, do they have their own standards to do that? And the answer is, it doesn't scale. So we had a few. We had one with Showtime, was direct. And um, two companies came out and said, look, we're going to be gateways. And Adobe was one of them. Wow. Because they felt there was a market, and there is a market, to be a, what they call a SAML gateway. Like and Adobe, I, they, they have no they, 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 But they did. Um, so um, there, were, wow. there were two companies. And um, a lot of them go through Adobe, and, and the other one is uh, Cine I think it's still Cineverse, is the other um, gateway provider. And there may be others now, but you 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 have. Well, I guess Apple is technically. So Apple does something strange where they I they like signature your your cable provider, and they do auto authentication. Yes, they still have to go through a gateway. They're still going through a gateway. Yeah, and I don't know which one they might use, but they they need to go because not every cable provider is going to go to every provider device or every, they, they have to go through gateways. It become unmanageable as an industry. <laughs> you don't, and, and you don't think of Adobe, right now, you don't think of Adobe as a modern tech company at all. Like, they seem to be pretty far behind. Yeah, and, uh, and you know, I've used a bunch of their products on their, you know, AEM product, which is their, you know, their um, content management system. But my early days with them on access management, they're presenting a pretty good service, and, and maybe it was that's why they—that was their path into it—is because they are involved in the world of rich media. Clearly, yeah. I'd have to go back and think, but I remember getting those presentations, getting the pitch from them. Of you know, who do you use? And um, we use them for a while, and use some others. But every single content provider out there has got to go through a gateway to find out as a cable provider or a satellite provider is do you have access to it. They all, they all go through somebody. I, I remember the first time I tried this, I, I forget, I was trying to track the number of hops. And there were a lot of hops for that authentication. It seemed crazy. So first you got SAML, right? SAML's a couple hops. Um, and then um, you all the login pages are hosted generally. It's good. So they're generally hosted by the, um, the cable provider. Um, because you got to say, who are you? Right. To use yeah. their so credentials. So Comcast is absolutely the cable provider. Yeah. And they're, you're going to log in with your credentials. So on that, and then that, and eventually it has to talk to Apple, the Apple TV as well. And yeah. Then it has to go back to the station. Yeah, and it go, that usually does that server to server behind the scenes, usually, but not always, because SAML can run server right. side and client side. So you'll see these flips as you go through it. One authenticates, one authorizes the content. 
Um, sometimes the, the content provider needs you to log in on their site as well because they want to know who you are more than just saying, yes, you can use it. So there's some that do that. Um, some persistent for 30 days, some persistent for a year, so you don't have to log in again. Well, I know with Food Network app on Apple TV, it barely lasts two days. It's off, but that's that's definitely a bug. That's not shouldn't be that. It should be at least 30 days. Yeah, it's it's buggy because then you have the makers of these apps, and they may not be very good. And you could tell the whole fiefdom of Food Network, um, all the other shows. I think it's a Canadian company. All the other shows they own are all developed by the same app developer. It seems oh, kind of obvious. I think they they're, all, they're all scripts. Scripts, I think, is a parent company. Of uh, I guess. I, Home and Garden and Food Network. Yes. And I think it's scripts. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good. Now I have the story. That makes me, yeah, makes me I, very I, I, happy. I've been around a bit. Confused, confusing. <laughs> yeah. Wealth of knowledge. So what are you most excited about in the tech space right now? Uh, cloud. Yeah, I, I mean, been involved in cloud since uh, 08, 09. And um, you know, at that point, we were using it, using it on the East Coast for you know good disaster recovery systems and and um, really providing good caching layers because we could. We ended up going through. Uh, if you're in the East Coast, you remember Hurricane Sandy. Um, yeah, I was there actually. Yeah, yeah. It. it I was. Where yeah, was I, I, I was working. I was visiting. Working. Yeah, I wasn't in the heart of it. But. It was nasty. Um, you know, entire power blackout for a couple weeks, and um, awesome. We had a chance to leverage um, in Cablevision. We had a chance to leverage uh, AWS for um, maintaining our video content during the hurricane because we we manage TV stations and the um, newspaper content that came out of Newsday, and we ran most of it out of AWS and survived the hurricane, even though our head ends were down. Where was the, what was the region then? Do you know where it was located? Uh, we, we had a temporary region located in Europe, and we had one on the west coast. Oh, and okay. we set up whole, a whole CDN network, spun it up in a couple days, and had ourselves prepped for the potential loss of infrastructure. And the infrastructure was totally decimated, but surprisingly, during the hurricane, the videos of the hurricane and the weather reports that came out of our local news station, their traffic went up 100 times. Think about it, 100 times, not, not double, 100 times. Um, and we hosted everything out of Amazon, not a blip. Did you have auto scaling on, or how was no, it? No, we manually scaled. Oh, we, we just, wow. Well, we had a CDN structure in front, we just sat there and just... So, I have to ask you a question about CDNs because it seems like a lot of the outages I've seen lately have been the CDN. How do you do high availability for a CDN? Um, well, CDNs themselves have got to have high availability. Hopefully, but what if the CDN goes out? Like that's some of the that's some of the outages I've seen have been at the CDN layer. Yeah. One of the recent ones where I thought it was my internet because we had I don't know it was like it wasn't Trello. It was like Expensify, uh, MailChimp, and like three other services that I regularly use. And I had them all open on my browser. Viewed all of them. I forget what CDN it was, but they were all CDN. I remember, CDN but I won't say. <laughs> <laughs> um, they were all out. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, well, how do you prevent that? I, I, you know, I think um, there are... Um, 
I won't call it disaster approaches with domain routing that you can apply to that. You're not expecting the CDN to go down. Uh, so do you use something like CloudFront that might have a bit more geographic distribution, which is you know AWS's, or do you use a third party, which they leverage cloud as well? Um, it's it it you know as part of the overall cloud design and cloud architecture that you're choosing, you've got to go through that DR planning, and you got to look at what your SLAs are and and how fast things need to come up. So. For some people, being down for an hour or two, it's critical to their business. They don't need to have a plan. Oh, sorry, they, they, they do need to have that plan. Some you know, might say, you know, I'm, I'm good being down a couple hours. So you can put it into your designs, um, and there's a bunch of different techniques, but you have to ask yourself, do you, you know, how much do you put into those types of disasters and downtime um, versus the expense of it, versus the effort, right? And every enterprise, small company is going to make those choices. That's the great thing about doing cloud architecture is company A says, I don't care, and company B goes, I really, really care. I can't be down for five minutes. Yeah. What's your, what's your background, education-wise? Um, electrical engineer and... Um, electrical engineer. Yeah, okay. and a computer science uh, option on my electrical engineering degree. So do you think, you, do you consider yourself a software guy or a hardware guy? I mean, I guess I know the answer to that question, yes. but. I'm a software guy. Yeah. Yeah, even even in electrical engineering, my I deviated from, you know, the big power stuff to microelectronics and microchips. But that's why you were able to do uh, telco, I mean, and, and because uh, and, there's so much hardware. <laughs> you. You gave me awful flashbacks of the DSL days and getting the modems and trying to connect. And um, you were telling me the whole ATM versus IP. Yeah. I had, I had no clue. That was, a, that was a big fight in 03, in 93 and 94, is that not all the hardware manufacturers believed in internet protocol, IP. We take it for granted. It was not for granted back then. It was a ruckus debate. Um, and you know, IP won out, but it took years before all the hardware manufacturers believed that that's what they were going to build on. So I met you um, because you have a connection with uh, JC over at Eplexity, and with JC we talked uh, a lot about um, AWS and so forth. But we also talked about a topic that I'm very interested in, and he. And he made the statement that it was kind of like, are we going backwards, back to the days where, you know, we've gone, we went from distributed computing, all personal devices, et cetera, to now back kind of centralized computing. And he said, we're going back. And we're going back. And, and a lot of it's driven by IoT. Now the thing with IoT though is that the device, you're in, the personal interaction with the device is usually very minimal. Um, so I don't know if it's the same as the personal computer world, but you were saying we're going back to distributed computing. Do you feel like that's true? I, I think in the in the case of the IoT world, it is true. Um, you know, IoT is a, uh, you know, it is, we are putting intelligence in our, in our things, whatever those things are. And those things have to communicate but they also um, need to be just a little bit smart. They don't have to be super smart. So, you know, whereas personal computers and 
the days of distributed computing, um, they were relative, you know, relatively smart devices. IoT devices mostly are, they can, they can be super dumb, like a weather sensor, super dumb, right? It needs to do one thing, still needs communication. Yeah, and it's crazy. The, the amount of data being transferred is very, it's minimal. And in the DISH world, you know a lot about that. Yeah, and it, it, you know, DISH um, has a you know, lot of things that they've been doing in the, in the IoT space publicly. You know, it's been a, it's been a journey for them. Um, and it, you know, I think that, that IoT is, in general has been a market that is, uh, you know, it's the old hockey sticks. I remember them from the 90s, right? where you, you put hockey sticks in, right? Respect to the number of devices and the num number of customers, actually. In the 90s, it was all about customers. In the IoT space, it's devices. You know, it's thousands and then tens of thousands and then hundreds of thousands and millions and then hundreds of millions, right? right. Um, and carriers like, like Dish have to figure out how to handle that, right? Um, they have to figure out how to how to best handle the explosion and provide service to them. Um, and I think as a you know, company that has spent a lot, a lot of years in servicing millions of customers, they got their handle on volume. They know what it means to do volume communication. Yeah, like everything changes in volume. It, I, it does. I it, screwed up on my burger. Don't get blue cheese and green chili. That is a bad combo. <laughs> it's a fantastic burger, but don't get blue yeah, I you know I, I think that um, we say you know a lot in the software world. And I've been writing software since I was twelve. I actually remember my very first program, which was written in was written in uh, Fortran on a GE one one five mainframe. In uh, how'd you get access to that at twelve? Uh, in Ontario, where I where I grew up, there were two high schools um, in the mid seventies that had their own computers. And I just happened to be in this wonderful little remote town called Pembroke. They had one of them. Wow. And um, so when I went into high school, uh, my, my brother said, you know, you'd really like this thing over here and write some software. And I said, what the heck is that? So you got the old you know, key punch, you know, keyboard out to, to punch cards. And I remember writing a program that counted from one to 10 and printed it out. When I handed the cards in, the cards came back out with the with paper wrapped around it, showing me the output. And I said, "Oh my God, I can tell that thing to count to 10. That's <laughs> it. <laughs> so right. I, that's, uh, that's that's over 45 years of writing software. That's it's, awesome. It's my, a long, long time. My first was a Commodore, and I can even remember the bedroom in the house here in here in Centennial, where I was sitting on the floor. I had the Commodore set up, but I dug out this Commodore. I mean, it, it was sitting for a while. Opened up this book and I just typed out the instructions that were there. Saved it to a tape. Yeah, and it, and it ran, and I was, just, I was same kind of experience. I was blown away. And then I got really big on programming my TI-92 to do things for me. The Timex? <laughs> The Texas Instrument calculator, oh. the 92, that was oh. like I don't, yeah, the, the old Timex, um, no. it was a black um, little hand computer. Yeah, computers come and go. They do, and I think that back to the uh, DevOps conversation is um, 
your mindset matters a lot. I think in the 90s, we ran into this period where everybody was executors and you didn't have to collaborate. You, you just did what you did, right? That's where we got the stereotype of the ponytail, Mountain Dew drinking, yeah. DBA that didn't didn't listen to anything that anybody ever told them, yeah. and they could. <laughs> um, but now, like you have to embrace the mindset. Otherwise, you can't follow that evolution of what you first started coding on to now AWS, public cloud. What language do you like now? Oh, um, uh, Node. Okay. Python. Probably my top top two. Um, and I, I don't know, coded in, I don't know, 20, 30 languages, who knows what, but um, those Pyth two I like. Python stuck around for a long time. It did, it, and it's a huge resurgence. And I, I think the, to me, those two, the two big things that have pushed Python back into the forefront, one, uh, machine learning, writing notebooks, yep. huge, huge base for Python. And the second is that a lot of the coding that you do around the cloud is generally written in Python. You're writing Python scripts. So if you do serverless computing, you have, you have three choices, right? Let's say, take, in, take Amazon, right? And you're writing a Lambda function. You go Python, you, go, you can go Node, uh, or you can go Java. Well, in most cases, you're not going Java because the startup time's too long. You've got to warm it, so put that aside. And now it's Python and Node. So if you're, you're into serverless computing, those are your two languages of choice, okay. at least on the Amazon side, right? On Azure, you have slight different choices, but um, so I, I just like the, the instantaneous um, you know, view of, of Python coding, right? It's not a compile-based, right? It's more interpretive-based. And Node, um, the synchronous approach to Node is just, you can, you can do a lot with it. And um, so Unfortunately, I'm not very skilled in either. I think the last quote-unquote modern language that I was proficient in was PHP. I love PHP. I, based, I think Facebook's still on PHP. I right? do. I love PHP, but you know, don't say a, that in public. Well, one of the first mail clients I wrote for Cablevision was all PHP based because it's it's a decent language. It works. I mean, it, it, works. it was convenient for me going from Java, C sharp, PHP. Kind of was my back to C sharp was my evolution. Or no, no, sorry. C, Java, PHP, C sharp. Yeah, I, I, I think languages, they're, they're um, yeah, it's very pragmatic what languages you write. I mean, going back to this financial institution I work, worked with here in, in Denver, they'd still COBOL coders, right? You know, if you have the systems that run that way, you got you got. I remember write getting COBOL. the Borland boxes and like how excited like getting the latest Borland was. It was so awesome. You remember HyperCard? I do. I wrote uh, I wrote HyperCard back in uh, God. It would have been in the nineties. Yeah. Um, I had my had my Mac set up in um, in the spare bedroom, and of course, I was playing a Mist while I was writing HyperCard. I was just gonna tell you, like, the only reason I got into HyperCard was because they of Mist. Missed. <laughs> Absolutely. At that time, I was writing software that was doing internet kiosks, and okay. I was writing the internet kiosk in HyperCard. 
it was a, you know, it was a great piece of yeah. software. Yeah, loved it. Car was Put it aside after a while, but I did finish Mist. <laughs> and then there was what was the second Mist? Oh, it, it went Mist Zork, and then they did another Mist. Mist never, was remarkable. Never played it. I, I, I was blown away by that kind of game. Yeah, blown away, and I. I, I keep telling. I still have the CDs. Uh, oh, do you? Yeah. My my son, who's a, who's a writer, um, and he plays a lot of games, right? But mostly um, first person, not first person, but um, story based games, right? Okay. So not shooter games, but very story oriented. You know, as a, as a writer, I said you got to go back and play this. Oh God, yeah. You got to. And this said, what's amazing. the game about? Well, you know nothing. <laughs> Think about it. There's no helper guides. Right. There's there's no real internet going on, right? Right. And you plug these things in and you're stuck. You're, you're there at the dock, right? And you're looking at around. You're going, okay, what's this game about? Oh, just play it. Yeah. That game was crazy. remarkable. So are you all in AWS? Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. I think um, that doesn't mean... I don't know DCP and Azure and, and work, work on projects on that, but um, I think there's a degree of maturity that um, AWS has um, okay. and experience that you want to give to those their clients, right? Um, you've watched AWS go through the goods and bads. You've watched their service explode, right? And they're constantly releasing things. Um, it's hard to think of things you can't do on AWS and do it securely and do it in volume and do it in scale anywhere, right? It doesn't matter which part of the world. That doesn't mean the others are, are that can't do that, but I'm, I, I, I'm a fan. Like I said, I go back to Sandy. I was born a fan when those, when my paper. That's right. Right? And that TV station Hurricane stood up. Sandy made you a fan. It made me a fan and I, you know, once a fan, yeah, to go back. I'm not going to argue because you have so much more technical chops over me. Um, I have a more of a, a personal bias, but um, yeah, that's neither here nor there. Well, so final question, DevOps, we're in year six of DevOps. It's getting kind of boring. You know, you don't have to convince people anymore, really. Oh, I disagree. You do. Really? Oh, okay. Well, that's the question. No. What's next is I, the question. I, I think. I think the. You know, we in the tech space. Yeah. Right. We tend to work with people, and and sometimes get a lot of our opinions of those that are on the forefront of it. Already there. Okay. There is a ton of companies. Not only don't understand cloud, but don't understand what DevOps means culturally or tool-wise or technology. Um, there's a lot of learning that has to go on. Um, I've, had a, I've had the pleasure of listening to Gene Kim a few times. Had him, had him over at Charter to talk to people four years ago. Um, and the entire industry, right? I mean, all the people that run IT, there's so many people that still need to learn and need, need to know what it's about. And I, I think it's still a journey. Right? You, you read the puppet reports. Um, I think those are in the leading edge. We're going to be trying the new techniques. We're going to be trying releasing fast and safe. We're, we're worrying about DevSecOps, right? Bringing security into it. But the other, I don't know, 70, 60% of the world that's still running software, they're not there yet. Yeah, 
I think I, I think you're. I, I will say that I feel like there's kind of this steady state now. We're over the. Did you go to a DevOps days or not go to a DevOps days? And the newest thing, and, and we're we're we've gotten very real about what DevOps is, but there's still a whole bunch of people that haven't. They bought into the premise, but haven't done anything with it. And so when I say it's gotten boring, but um, but it's, but you're right. The the fact that we all kind of drink our own Kool Aid and don't even realize it, and and get once you get away from the unicorns and realize there's a really big world out there, a very important software who hasn't embraced this yet. Yeah, I was I was working for a um, a food distribution company for for a while back back a couple years ago, doing some work on they were converting their COBOL system to Java. And um, they, they ran Agile, right? Um, but their DevOps stopped, their tooling stopped really on, on the, the dev deployments and a little bit of production deployments and didn't have infrastructure scaling and didn't have you know, um, all the things that you would have in a, a standard tool, tool chain today. Did we bring them further and further along? Absolutely. But, there's thousands of companies like that, big and small. This is a multi-billion dollar company that was still trying to figure out how to get off mainframes and single-threaded code and get into automation of simple build pipelines. Right? That's there's a lot of that. A lot of it. And that's why I I love the topic of DevOps. It's, it's one of my absolute favorites because it's culture and people and then it's technology underpinning it all, right? Yeah, and, and you've seen the evolution of it through a lot of very challenging tech industries at scale. That's the thing is most most DevOps conversations I have, you know, they're talking big at a thousand, ten thousand users. This is millions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When, millions. You, when you have when you have the ability to push a button that affects millions of people, um, you need to make sure you're you are locked down solid. Everything changes. Every, too. Everything does because, um, and especially, and I'll say it, even and those in the telecom field, they have, you can call them. So you know, let's say um, I don't know, website B is down on somebody that doesn't have a call center. You can't call them. Right. You, you, they put something on Yelp or right. or, or whatever your whatever your communication tool is up to talk about why that website is down. For telecom companies, you pick up the phone. And they get flooded. They get flooded. <laughs> it, it's not only real, but it's real. Right. Well, Rob, thank you. This was awesome. I appreciate yeah. it. Thanks. Hope to do great. another episode with you soon. Yeah, great well, talking to you.